one bite. One small bite is all it takes for one to be cursed upon this earth. Cursed with an insatiable appetite and lust for human blood. Cursed to never see the light of day again. Cursed knowing you'll never truly be human for the rest of your days. Every meal begins with a slaughter of the innocent and ends with a lifeless husk of a corpse. <laughs> Welcome to the Is What Podcast. My name is Michael Graham and I will be your host on this blood drinking journey. Now this is the second episode in our Monster Month series and boy oh boy is it about to get spooky. This week, vampires. Now before I begin, please go follow me on social media, Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Is What Podcast. That's I-S-W-U-T-T podcast, facebook.com slash is what podcast. And if you really like what I'm doing here, feeling a little bit spooky, a little bit chilly, you can go to anchor.fm slash is what that's anchor.fm slash I-S-W-U-T-T and you can donate to the show. So that way I can provide the best possible experience for you the listener that will allow me to get my new mixing board set up so I can provide guests in the future, have tons of fun. I can get the mini fridge of my dreams so I can provide cold drinks, maybe cold blood for the guests in question. Now, with that said, the real question that I have is what is a vampire? Really? It's a creature from folklore that survives by consuming the life force of the living most commonly blood most commonly i say is blood now these creatures aren't quite dead but not quite living often inducted into vampiredom by getting bitten by an existing vampire and living or not to tell the tale features of vampires tend to include very almost white translucent skin an ability to turn into a bat being immortal and often because you're immortal accumulating immense wealth and power over this long life not having a reflection in the mirror naturally being a vampire means having to buy a castle atop of a mountain in the middle of nowhere complete with a windy road and lonely spooky stone halls very empty, very evil. Vampires do tend to have an adverse reaction to sunlight, either burning their flesh when they step into it or simply draining them of their energy and turning them feeble and weak. I suppose it all just depends on what account of vampirism you are reading into. Holy water can also injure a vampire and the sight of a cross can stun them. And to kill a vampire, to end its undead nightmare, one must drive a wooden stake through the chest, through the heart of the vampire while it sleeps in this coffin. One of the most interesting to me stories of really the 
the beginning of vampires and where they came from, what spawned this, this thought of this creature that is undead and sucks the blood and drinks the blood of victims. And I think that all starts with a Vlad the Impaler. I've known a little bit about Vlad the Impaler, but some of the things that I read while doing some research on Vlad the Impaler really were stunning. So Vlad the Impaler was the ruler of Wallachia, which is now, it's a region of what is now Romania, in the mid-1400s. And really the stories about him are what spawned the stories of Dracula and other vampires. He's considered to be one of the most important rulers in Wallachian history. And to people still living in Romania to this day, some consider him a national hero. Because I guess if you're Romanian, Vlad the Impaler is pretty cool. Now, taking the name Vlad Dracula after his father, Vlad Dracul or Vlad the Dragon, that's really where the name spawned from. He was the ruler of Wallachia multiple times throughout his life gaining power and then falling out of it only to regain power again, to lose power, to be captured, set free, regain power. So he actually held power a total of three times. He really was the king, the lord of Wallachia. As a young child, him and his brother were both held hostage by the Ottoman Empire. So his father, the king at the time, would pledge his loyalty to the Ottomans and he wouldn't try any uprisings or anything along those lines. So the Ottoman Empire is certainly that a group that Vlad the Impaler did not like. And you'll see later the things that he did to the Ottomans. Now, when he was in power, he was known for his sheer brutality and he reigned through fear. The numbers show that his victims, the victims at the hand of Vlad the Impaler and his army were as high as a hundred thousand. And this number is of a hundred thousand is quite impressive because the forces that he commanded were never very large in terms of military numbers. Really, it was only around, at maximum, 25,000 men. So for every one man that he commanded, four succumbed to his brutality. And what he lacked in terms of his military size, he certainly made up for in viciousness and that brutality. If you're captured by Vlad the Impaler, you would be considered lucky if the only thing that you experienced was death because he would routinely torture and mutilate those that he had held captive only to have them begging for death by the time it was all over. Now, Vlad the Impaler would drink the blood of his fallen victims and he believed that consuming their blood would grant him their strength the strength for him to carry on with his brutal tactics. Whether this is true or not, it definitely gives you a sense of the reputation that he had built for being unrelentingly heinous against his enemies. Considering that the region of Wallachia at the time was being warred over by two different families. So his family was, and let's see if I can get these names right, is the family of Draculesht. And another house of nobles called the House of Danesht. Vlad knew that once in power, he had to make this reputation known so he could hold on to that power. Now, both of these, these houses, both of these families had descended directly from the family that, would call, that was called uh, Basarab, 
and that family had founded the kingdom of Wallachia in that region. So they both thought their family had the rightful claim to the throne in that area. But to set an example for all of those that were considering challenging him in his throne, he made a very grisly display of all of these enemies. Most notably, it was the, the Saxons from Transylvania. And the Transylvanian Saxons were, there were a couple things that really set them up to be one of his first enemies and one of his first victims, groups of victims, I guess you would say. And one is they had different religions. So initially, right off the bat, you're, you're a part of a different religion. I, he did not like that. I do not like that. It's time to go. The other is that they felt that he was loyal to a different empire from him and they would be aligning with them to overthrow him. So they were a prime target. And these, these Saxons, if they did, which indeed they dared to defy his rule, he would send in his, his men and they would loot and burn and slaughter all of the inhabitants of the cities that they were living in. And due to the reaction that the Saxons had of him doing this, very quickly, they hopped on board and supported others that wanted to challenge Vlad, Vlad the Impaler, to his throne. So he didn't like that. So he declared an all-out war on the Transylvanian Saxons. And while he was going through and burning their villages and killing everyone, he began to institute the reason for his name. He impaled his prisoners. Now, often... When we think of impaling, we think, okay, great. So someone's killed and then their body is just stuck through the chest on a large spike, wooden, metal, whatever. Oh, no, 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 no. This is not how Vlad the Impaler impaled. Now, there were a few ways, notably, that Vlad would impale. First, he would take a wooden stake that is not sharp like we initially think. In fact, it would be quite dull. And he would insert this dull pointed end into the hind parts of the victim, leaving you or the victim in this case to sit atop of the stake. And over the course of hours or days, their body weight would work against them to slowly drive the stake further and further into their body, displacing their internal organs. And eventually they would succumb to those internal injuries, oftentimes bleeding out. The other would be to impale you through the side, just under the rib cage, driving the stake out the other side of you. And while subjecting his enemies to this method, Vlad the Impaler, or those actually impaling the victims, would assure that they acted very carefully as to not pierce too seriously any of the major organs in the center of the body, so that way, the time between impalement and death was maximized. I don't know if that is something that I would ever want to go through, ever want to see, ever want to hear about. Pretty bad. Pretty bad. So while sitting, or I guess depending how it is, lying sideways, with this stake driven through your body, the victim would slowly bleed out. And these open wounds and bodily fluids would be seeping from them. Often it would attract rats who would feast upon the flesh of the still living and unfortunate soul. 
And Vlad would leave the bodies in these fields of stakes that would allow for those who discovered these fields of stakes to understand his true cruelty and malice. Now, it was not the only way that Vlad dispatched his enemies. In fact, the Saxon city of Talmesh was where he started very notably to cut the limbs off of those that he would capture and the people that were living in the cities. And he would, while still living, cut off an arm, cut off a leg, and then throw their body into these large boiling cauldrons and boil them alive. Stew for dinner, anyone? Now, Vlad did indeed rule with that fear and that malice. In fact, there was one account where he accused 40 different students of potentially thinking about maybe one day defecting from his kingdom. And he didn't take that very kindly. So what he did is some of them were simply impaled alive. The others had more intense punishments prior to their impaling. One of the accounts was one of these students was stripped naked and the skin was stripped from their feet only to be dunked in a vat of salt. So imagine having an open wound and putting salt on it. This is your entire feet. Your entire feet section has no skin dipped in this salt. And then they were strapped down to a table and they would let the local goats loose to come and lick the salt off of their freshly skinned feet. And then as soon as that was done, yeah, sure, he would impale you. He would impale these guys. They would die. So doesn't sound like the most kind individual. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's a place that you would want to be living in. And if you are, you certainly wouldn't want to make your intentions of leaving that area known because of what would happen. He made a very big example of these 40 students. And I think people would think twice about uh, letting, letting their plans uh, be known by the neighbors. Now, you'd have to imagine, after a long day of sacking and pillaging, Vlad and his men would work up quite the appetite. So very well known. He was known to have his dinner table set up directly in front of the fields of impaled victims. So he would drink and dine, often drinking their blood and dining, while still living victims are impaled in front of him. And he would eat his dinner, watching them slowly waste away. I guess you could call that a power move. But eventually, Vlad, he did call a truce with the remaining Transylvanian Saxons. And they joined his army. Because they saw what he was doing to people that would dissent him. And no, that is not what they're trying to do. One of the main reasons why he called this truce with those Transylvanian Saxons is because the... The Ottoman Empire is where he really wanted to turn his sights to next. After all, when he was a young boy, him and his brother were both held captive by the Ottomans. He did not like that too much. So, the Ottoman ruler, Sultan Mehmed II, sent some emissaries to Wallachia to negotiate Vlad's surrender. Vlad provided his answer, and the way that he did that was by beheading these emissaries and mailing the heads back to the Ottoman king, the Ottoman sultan, with his answer nailed to their skulls. Now, 
once his answer to the surrender proposition was received, it was an all-out war. Now, by relying on guerrilla tactics, Vlad's much smaller army would attack Ottoman military bases in small groups. They would infiltrate at night and then just kill everyone from within. And the Sultan Mehmed II was not very happy about this. So he decided to send 60,000 men to Wallachia to wipe Vlad's forces from the earth. And remember, like I had said up on the top, Vlad only really had at most 25,000 men at his command. So his army was less than half of the forces that the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed had sent. And in the nighttime, oh, here we go. In the nighttime, Vlad and his men attacked a group of Ottoman soldiers outside the city of, and let's see if I can get this, Travogiste. Uh, that's probably way off. But in this attack, he killed 5,000 soldiers and took another 15,000 prisoner. He then proceeded to impale every last one of them. And the area where their spikes were all planted, one central area quickly became known as the Forest of the Impaled. When the rest of Mehmed's army, when the rest of the 60,000 members showed up and they saw what was happening, they were disgusted and demoralized. So Mehmed heard what had happened and immediately ordered the retreat for that entire army because those Ottomans, they were shook. I can't imagine it would be easy to continue to fight an enemy that's that brutal after seeing a forest of 20,000 of your own countrymen brutally festering and impaled upon these spikes. And eventually, Vlad was killed by an Ottoman invasion in January of 1477, but he had done enough for the legend of his cruelty and thirst for blood to be known. And because of his legend, the story of Vlad the Impaler spawns stories of vampires. The most infamous vampire, Count Dracula. Which leads me to an 1897 novel by the author Bram Stoker. And this is a very famous gothic horror novel, Dracula. Now... This novel introduced the world very much to Count Dracula, which has become the basis for a majority of these famous vampires and vampire tales as we know them today. Stoker's novel tells the story of Count Dracula and his attempt to move from Transylvania to England so he could find a more steady feast of victims and spread his undead curse. Count Dracula in the story invites a young English solicitor named Jonathan Harker to his castle so he can assist in brokering a deal, a real estate deal, this transaction between Count Dracula and Harker's employer. Now, while Harker is at Dracula's castle, he slowly but surely realizes that he's not there strictly on business. In fact, he's a prisoner of Dracula and he's being interned at the castle until the deal is completed. Now, as soon as the deal is indeed completed and the transaction is all done, then the Count flees his castle, hops on a boat, and leaves Harker there to barely escape with his life from the three female vampires or vampiresses that tried to seduce and consume him. And the ship that Dracula took 
from Transylvania to England was loaded with boxes of Transylvanian soil that Dracula knew he needed to regain his power and strength once he arrived into England. And the ship's captain logs the gradual disappearance of all of his crew makers, or I'm sorry, crew members. Eventually, the captain is the only one remaining, and he's held captive to keep the ship on course. And after Dracula lands in England, it turns out he actually set up multiple estates to then become his lairs, and he begins to stalk a friend of the fiancé of Harker. And this friend, Lucy, begins to suffer from bouts of sleepwalking, temporary dementia, and she slowly begins to waste away. Enter Abraham Van Helsing. And as soon as Van Helsing sees this lady wasting away, he knows exactly what's going on. So he does attempt to protect her with garlic. Garlic sounds delicious. Garlic bread, garlic knots, garlic cheese bread, garlic on pizza. But not if you're a vampire. So eventually Lucy is attacked in the night and she does emerge with two small bite marks on her neck. Everybody's not too sure what's going on, but after passing away, she is indeed transformed into a vampire herself. So Van Helsing alerts a few men that he knows and he tasks them to track her down, send a stake through her heart, behead her, put garlic in her mouth and end it all. At this time, Harker returns from Transylvania, once again, barely escaping with his life, and he joins the hunt with Van Helsing and his newly married wife, the friend of the female vampire. After finding out where all of Dracula's lairs are, they systematically enter these lairs, and they place sacramental bread in each of these graves and these coffins, rendering them completely useless for Dracula, so he cannot regain his strength. And... Eventually, Dracula decides to head out of England, retreat back to Transylvania. And they all decide to follow him. And once they're in Europe, they converge upon his caravan, the caravan escorting Dracula back to his lair. And they drive a, a silver knife through his heart. They cut his throat. And he turns into dust, ending his cruel reign as an undead. The story of Dracula, it's actually been made into various different adaptations on screen, whether it be movies or shows, miniseries, uh, fantastic. And it really is one of the most influential vampire, if not the most influential vampire pieces of media ever created. A couple other things of note, we do have Interview with a Vampire that I recently watched, which is a fantastic movie with Brad Pitt, with Tom Cruise. It's one of those movies that I could watch over and over again when spooky season does arrive. We have vampires and a mix with werewolves in the Twilight series. I think when it comes to vampires sparkling in the sunlight, it's not very legit for a couple reasons. One, vampires can't really go into the sunlight. And two, sparkling. What's up with that? Anyways, that is what it is. But there have been vampires in books, in movies, in TV shows. There have been albums written about vampires because people truly are fascinated by this thought of being undead, being immortal. In fact, some people are so incredibly transfixed with the idea of a vampire. It all, for me, it all sounds like fun and games and stories, you know, like I said, books and movies and shows. But the real question is, are there vampires living among us? 
Well, yes, there are. According to an article written by or and published by the New York Daily News in October 2015, there are 5,000 people in the United States that currently live as vampires. Now, these self-proclaimed vampires, or as I call them, the vampy boys, they do consume blood of animals, and they drink human blood that is donated to them. And most of these people tend to lead normal lives. According to vampire expert John Edgar Browning, who spent five years studying this population of real-life vampires here in the United States. Now, you have to remember, keep in mind, when I say vampire expert, that is with air quotes for sure. But a real quote comes from Browning himself. And he says, after a short period of time, I realized they weren't too crazy he said, at least they weren't any crazier than your average Joe. So he says some of these vampires would get their blood provided to them for free by close friends, while others would pay people to donate blood for consumption. And Browning, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Georgia Institute of Technology, once served as a donor during his five-year study with the New Orleans vampire population. So he said the vampire swabbed his back with an alcohol pad, made a small incision with the scalpel, and then drank the blood directly from the cut on his back. So vampire, the vampire interviews by Browning, a little bit sketchy to say the least, but what they claim is that they get a certain energy from drinking this blood that can take them from being incredibly tired, overworked, and with even a small sample of human blood, it can rejuvenate them. Almost like is if you or I had an energy drink or a good cup of coffee. There was an interesting quote from this article that I thought was a little bit um, outlandish, I guess you would say. So this quote is from a vampire, a self-proclaimed vampire, who calls herself Kinesia. And she actually told them, and here's, here's the quote. One scary moment I had was when I was admitted to the ER for having a low heart rate and the low heart rate would jump up to 160 when I stood up or walk around. I felt a massive migraine and often lose consciousness. Basically, my heart was working extra hard to keep everything functioning. A reaction, I believe, because I did not feed for four months. So not all of these self-proclaimed vampires do drink blood. Some claim that they can harvest energy just from the physical touch of a human. The Atlanta Vampire Group claims that there are as many as 10,000 non-blood-drinking vampires in the U.S., in addition to the 5,000 that do indeed feed on the red life liquid. So there you have it. You have a little bit of a history of Vlad Dracul, Vlad the Impaler, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is one of the one of the cornerstones in vampire literature, media, and real life vampires as we know them today. I hope you are having a an incredibly spooky October. 
I hope when you walk outside you get a little chill down your spine. I hope you're all ready for jack-o'-lanterns and nights of tricks and treats. With that said, thank you for joining me on this Monster Month episode about vampires. I'll say what's up to that. Ha 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 